Hey friends, good morning. So good to be with you. If you got a Bible, let's uh, open it up uh, to the book of Galatians. So uh, if you're a guest with us and you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible at a row at the end of a row near you. You can use that. Or um, as many of us do, we use our phones. We use the English Standard Version. So if you want to just download that app quickly, we will be in the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians. We've just finished um, an 18-month stint in the book of Luke. And then over the summer... We just finished uh, the book of um, overview of the book of Proverbs, and so today we dive into the book of Galatians, and it will take us all the way to Christmas, so get comfortable. Uh, you know, you get to come go home and then come back, but you know, we're, we're going to be in this book for a little bit. So uh, today is the intro of the book of Galatians, just looking at verses 1, chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, and so what I want to do is I want to read that and uh, then pray. Now before I do, I just want to make... Uh, you aware of a few things. Things are getting uh, ramped up here at Treasuring Christ Church after um, kind of some hit or miss things over the summer, but now we have uh, this coming Sunday, so not today, but a week from today, we're going to have a family meeting trying to set our bearings for uh, the upcoming semester, talk to you about several uh, pretty amazing things that God has been doing in the life of the church, things have to do with the future and um, you know, not like end times predictions or anything crazy, but you know, just what's going on at the church. So we want you to come and to uh, just experience family life there. It'll be 4.30 to 7.30. Um, the, some of the emails went out 5 to 7. It'll be 4.30 to 7.30 so that we can get um, some food time in there so we will feed you. Um, and if you need child care, you need to RSVP for that by Wednesday, okay? So we need everybody's RSVP so make sure we have enough food for you. And uh, that will be, there'll be an RSVP on an app, and also you'll get an email about that as well. Other things, Loving the City celebration is coming up September the 9th. We have a seminar coming up the end of September. So a lot of things happening in the life of the church, looking forward to that. But let me read Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and then I will pray. Paul, an apostle. Not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I ask that in this moment, you would so work with great power and clarity that we would be changed on the spot. We're asking, Father, that you would send your Holy Spirit to come down in fullness and in power. We don't ask that casually. We don't ask that with a sense of audacity. We only call you to do what you promised to do. Be with your people and move in power. Because we know if your Holy Spirit comes and he moves in power in our midst, we will never be the same. Pride will be gotten rid of, there will be a great sense of living for Jesus over ourselves 
the way we do business, the way we handle our marriages and relationships will change. We will forgive one another, Father. We will want your glory to be known above our own. Money will not be our savior, and other relationships will not replace you. You will be the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and this city will know it. This city will change. This city will be different because like a light shining on a hill in the darkness, it will be those people are different and they love largely because they've been loved. Father, do it. Do it in our midst. Come. Bring revival-like power. We know that that's going to require some repentance. It's going to require some on-our-faceness. But we ask, oh God, give us the joy of experiencing you. We need you. And we don't come having it together. And we don't come with the craziness that we'll be able to clean ourselves up good enough. We need you. So come. Come, Father, I pray. And truly help us to know what it means to be set free. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. August 28th, 1963. Martin Luther King Jr. standing on... The steps with the shadow of Abraham Lincoln and the Lincoln Memorial behind him gave his famous I Have a Dream speech. For it was Abraham Lincoln who had signed over almost 100 years earlier the Emancipation Proclamation, June 19th. And it was on this Juneteenth where African Americans were declared by this piece of legislation to no longer be property but people who God had said they had been all along. Made in his image. But a hundred years later, standing on those steps, Martin Luther King Jr. finds himself in a very precarious situation. Legislation saying one thing to then only be kind of overturned and Jim Crow coming in and all kinds of mess. And he's standing there. And here's how he depicts the situation in which he's standing. And I quote, But one hundred years later, the Negro still is not free. One hundred years later, the life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination one hundred years later. The Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity one hundred years later. The Negro is still languished in the corners of American society and finds himself an exile in his own land. So we've come here today to dramatize a shameful condition. What he describes is the bondage that African Americans felt for years. Many sometimes still do, and that's extended to other minority groups as well, this sense of bondage, this sense of non-equality, a sense of pain. No matter your political stance, this is not a political message for What I want to point out is the content of the speech. He begins by stating the bondage that his people were in. We also have another letter, letters from Birmingham jail, where he tells that this was not just theory. This affected his family. His family had been turned away from amusement parks after they had gotten together and said, hey, we're going to go to an amusement park only because of the color of their skin. He had to look at his kids and say, no, you have to go to a different bathroom than everybody else because people don't think you're equal. He had to have those lessons to his kids because this was his life. It wasn't just the life of some theory or something broader. It was pain. It was bondage. It was difficulty. 
But in that same message, the I Have a Dream speech, he also talked about a dream. A dream that talked about a different scenario. What might it be if the bondage were released? Where people were treated equally. Where the joy of equality would be experienced by others. And then at the end of it, he quotes an old spiritual from 1907 written by a man named J.W. Work. The title of the spiritual was Free at Last. Martin Luther King Jr. says, Free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, I am free at last. And it comes from this hymn. Here's verse 3 of the hymn and the chorus. It goes like this. Some of these mornings, bright and fair, I thank God I'm free at last. Gonna meet King Jesus in the air. I thank God I'm free at last. I thank God I'm free at last. Oh, free at last, free at last. Thank God I'm free at last. I thank God I'm free at last. The hymn writer knew that although physical bondage was difficult and there was a plea for a sense of physical freedom, that there was a freedom that was deeper than even physical freedom. It was a freedom that could only be solved when you meet King Jesus in the air. It was a freedom that could only be satisfied when sinners who should not be in the presence of a living God were brought into collision with His love face to face. That was freedom. And so the book of Galatians, it speaks to a freedom. But it's a freedom that's much bigger than just social reform and social justice. It is a freedom that includes a sinful people colliding with the living God of the universe and being with Him forever. And when He comes again, it'll be a new heavens and a new earth. It'll not just be spiritual, it'll be physical. Everything will be made right. And the book of Galatians says, You have been crafted for freedom in me. Why in the world? Would you live enslaved to the world? And so, as we look at that I have a dream message, you see some of the same themes. And this is why the book of Exodus and the theme of the Exodus was so important in the days of slavery. It was because The people of Israel were enslaved by the Egyptians. And the prayer was, oh God, deliver us. Deliver us. But tell me. Were they just delivered out of slavery? Or were they delivered into something better? You know the answer. It wasn't enough to just get out of Egypt. It was, get me to a promised land. Similar to Martin Luther King's speech, it was not only deliver us from this bondage, but create a dream. I want you to know that in the Bible, freedom is not just the deliverance from sin and the trappings of addiction or pain. It is not just the deliverance from suffering or the deliverance from sin, it is the deliverance to something else. It is the deliverance to presence of fellowship with Almighty God who doesn't promise a relief of pain but promises to be with you in it. This is the beauty of the gospel that sinners can be united with God. 
Freedom is so precious, precious because it is not just a deliverance from something, but a deliverance to something. And so today what we're going to look at as an overall banner for the book of Galatians, we're going to look at freed from bondage and freed to union with Christ. Freed from bondage and freed to union with Christ. Let's dive into the first four verses and let's see. Under this banner of freed from bondage, let's see what Paul is going to teach us. Chapter 1, we believe that 66 books of the Bible, this Bible is God's infallible precious word. It is his letter to us speaking and it, within it are the words of authority with which we live our lives upon. And so we come to the very first verse of chapter 1 and it says, Paul, an apostle. Now, if you work for a company, you know who the CEO of that company is. Now, how would you feel if everybody gathers at a corporate meeting? CEO walks up, says, my name is Frank, CEO. You'd be like, yeah? You'd be like, why is he like, tooting his own horn why is he like you know like ceo you know why is he like showing off his his title what's he doing well i want you to know that sense of potential hubris or arrogance is not what paul is doing here on the contrary there's a group of churches in modern day turkey it was a region called galatia and these group of churches had been experience, had experienced the preaching of the good news of Paul and their lives had been changed. That's what these churches were gathered around. They were gathered by faith in Jesus Christ alone and they were worshiping Christ, but something had been smuggled in. Something had been smuggled in. It was a false gospel by false teachers that it was Jesus plus something. Jesus plus something that they could do for God in order to earn acceptance and in order to earn his love. It was Jesus plus. And Paul says, no way, no how. But the problem was, they're like, Paul, you're just a man. Why should I be listening to you? And so Paul begins this letter, as he does in chapters 1 and 2, in some senses defending why they should listen to him. And the first Item on that defense is, I'm an apostle. But look at what he says after that. Not from men. It wasn't a group of people that just gathered around and said, yeah, he looks like a good leader. He's got some leadership skills. We'll, we'll crown him apostle. No, apostle meant, it means little a apostle. It means one sent out on behalf of. But this is speaking to kind of big a apostle. That is those who saw Jesus. And walked with him and were set apart as the leaders of his church. Twelve of them to, to kind of typify the twelve tribes of Israel who failed. And now you're starting this new church of God with these twelve leaders. Paul is called an apostle. Not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. So he's saying... I was struck blind on the road to Damascus when I saw Jesus face to face. I was made an apostle, an ambassador to the Gentiles with the good news of Jesus Christ. 
That was something that God did. He did that to me. And if you doubt that he has the power to use a fallible man to bring an infallible gospel, then just remember who he is. He's one, what does it say? Who raised Jesus from the death. So Paul is defending that he's not just coming with a message from man. He is coming with God's message. A message of the good news of Jesus Christ. A message that they should both feel is authoritative and they should feel rebuked by. And so it goes on in verse 2. Not only Paul himself, but all the brothers who are with him are affirming the content of this letter to the churches in Galatia. And he goes on to say, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This message was one that was regularly given at the beginning of Paul's letters. Grace is, does anybody know, it's, it's God's help. Grace is God showing up on the scene. You couldn't fix yourself. God helps. He comes in. He does what you couldn't do. It's the power and might and grace of God. He's saying May God's grace be upon you. That's what saved you, and you still need His grace to live day by day. And may His peace be upon you from God that you would find a strong sense of just rest in His presence. So Paul is not after them to like one-up them, show them off. He's not out for something bad to happen to them. He wants great things to happen to them. But in order for that to happen, they have to realize they've got a disease in their midst. There's sickness going on. And that sickness in the book of Galatians is specific. That sickness is this. They are saying that Jewish circumcision is required upon non-Jewish people called Gentiles in order for them to experience the acceptance and love and salvation of God. Jesus plus. You might hear it today differently, but you still hear Jesus plus. You hear, I've got to clean myself up before God will accept me. That's Jesus plus. Jesus plus me being good enough for him to come near to me. Paul says that kind of message is so poisonous. He says in chapter 1, This false message, let those who are preaching it be accursed. Let them be damned. Let them be experiencing the fires of hell and judgment upon them because they are preaching a message that will kill the souls of people. It's that serious. Jesus plus is huge. The Jehovah's Witnesses say it. Muslims say it. Mormons say it. It's always Jesus plus. They always jack with Jesus. They always mess him up. This is not just first century Judaism. This is Jesus plus is something that has been happening for years. The Gnostics earlier, if you read 1 John, there was this wave of Gnosticism that came in and it said, not only must you trust in Jesus, but you've got to have a special knowledge. You've got to have a special knowledge. You've got to know a little bit more about God and that's how He accepts you. No way. Paul says, 
You are justified, declared not guilty in God's courtroom by faith alone. Not by what you could do for him, but what he did for you. And the heresy in Galatians was, no, those people have to add circumcision. That is, got to become Jewish. So now you're adding some external command and you're adding ethnicity to Jesus only. That is the heresy. Why circumcision? Because if you hit the rewind button to the very first book of the Bible, you're in Genesis. And as you land in Genesis, what happens is you find Abraham. It says in chapter 12 that Abraham, one man who could not have children, like this dude is old. He's like 100, his wife is 80. They have not had children, couldn't have children. It was it, The chapter's been written, right? Like, this ain't going to happen. And God says, I want you to go to a land that I will show you. And I will make out of you. Abraham, a mighty nation. And I will bless all the nations of the earth through you. And I will bless you so that you might be a blessing to them. So then you land in Genesis 15. It was a crisis of faith. He says, Abraham, look up at the stars in the sky. He says, can you count them? Uh Uh-uh. God says, As many as the stars are in the sky, so will be your children that come from you. Can you imagine that crisis of faith? Like, that's craziness. That's just flat out craziness. But welcome to Christianity. It's just flat out craziness. We have so much access and privilege in America. Like you can go on thousands of church websites that are preaching the good news of Jesus, and many of them will have videos that share testimonies of people's lives being changed on the spot. Stories of how they were living horrible lives of enslavement and shackled, painful lives, and all of a sudden God changing them. You can go all over the internet and find genuine stories of God changing people. You can talk to our international workers. And our international workers will give testimony to how God is making a name for himself among peoples who have never known him. And is saving people. David and Lorraine Coker experienced one time in their ministry people being saved almost daily. Miraculous. Miracle upon miracle. Abraham has one word from God that says, hey, I'm going to bless all the nations through you. And now he's standing under the stars and he says, hey, um, all those stars, your kids are going to outnumber them. And Abraham says, it says of Abraham, And he believed. He just took God at his word. He didn't perform some ritual. He just said, God, I can't do that. But I trust that you can. And it says, and he believed. And it was credited to him as righteousness. An unrighteous person was now clothed in righteousness so that he could stand before a living God, accepted and loved by simply saying, I can't, you can, I trust you. Simple faith. But, in the book of Genesis, there was a command in Genesis 17, because 
How do you know that a tree is alive? Because it's bearing fruit or because it has leaves on it. Well, Abraham was called to raise up a future generation that says, the children who are of the people of Israel, you should circumcise the male children in order to communicate that God is my God. The obedience of circumcision was not to make him saved or was not to make him loved. It was an expression of already being loved, of already being a child. Now fast forward all the way to the book of Galatians. Obedience is necessary. But Paul has to do some unraveling because what he's going to say in the book of Galatians is we are no longer under the law given to Israel. We are under a new law, the law of Christ. When Jesus came, it reversed all kinds of things. And now everything is in the Jesus bucket and we follow him and follow his commands. But we don't follow his commands in order that he might save us. We do his commands because he's already saved us. It's justification by faith alone, not Jesus plus. And so... What Paul was amped up about by writing this letter. It was that they were saying in order to be accepted by God. You have to do something else. The very freedom Jesus died to preserve. They're now jumping back into slavery. Here's where I get this idea. From Paul. He says in Galatians 2, 4 to 5. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, so these are false teachers coming in, they slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us again into slavery. You see how he's couching this? False teachers coming in, and they're basically covert operatives. Just finished watching the new Mission Impossible, won't give anything away, but all the... Mission Impossibles, they all have this kind of theme. It's where they can make faces, like they can computerize, make somebody else's face, put a mask on. You never know who's the real person. That's just how it works. And this is exactly what the false teachers were doing. They were coming in under the false pretenses that they were bringing good news, and instead they were assassinating the truth. They were killing the gospel. And under the guise and disguise of freedom, they were covertly trying to re-enslave the people of the churches of Galatians. That's why, if you go back to the opening verses, Galatians chapter chapter 1, verse 4, Paul begins this whole letter talking about freedom. Says in verse 4, if you got the Bible open, you can see it there. Grace, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to, can anybody say the next two words? Deliver us. Throughout the scriptures, these are the words of the theme of freedom it's redemption, it's rescue, it's deliverance, it's salvation. All of that is what Paul means when he speaks of. Freedom in Christ. So Paul is beginning the letter to the Galatians saying, you have been set free. How? 
because Jesus gave himself for our sins. That means he stood in the place of sinners, our sin put upon him for our sins. That's what that means. He gave his life up to deliver us from the present evil age. According to the will of God the Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. What does it mean to be set free from the present evil age? Well, he hints at this later on in Galatians chapter 4, verse 3. All I'm trying to do right now is to help you see that this theme of freedom runs all throughout the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 4, verse 3. In the same way, we also, when we were children, that means young, immature. It means we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. We lived the way the world lives. We solved things the way the world solved it. We thought religiously and uh, theology-wise, all the way the world thinks. We crafted our own way of solving the world's problems. We were enslaved to the world. Do you hear that language? He uses slavery and enslavement, and he uses language of freedom from that slavery. Because bondage, bondage is painful. Bondage is painful. If you've ever been addicted to something, you know it's painful. Initially, it looks like it's going to be the answer to all your problems. Whether it's the getting rid of fear, whether it's the numbing you from experiencing the pain you're going through, it looks like it's going to solve things only to enslave you. And then you wonder at some point, how in the world do I get out of this? And you still can't figure it out. It's painful. It could be addiction to drugs. It could be addiction to alcohol. It could be addiction to money and power and prestige. It could be addiction to anger and just venting. Just getting things off of your chest. because that's what. And you've trained yourself. You train yourself to respond in certain ways. It's painful. It was in the movie Black Panther towards the end of the movie when one of the uh, individuals in the movie, I always hesitate to quote and to point out movies because I don't want to be a, a massive spoiler guy. So, um, But there's a guy in the movie, Killmonger, and as he is facing life and death, he makes this quote towards the end of the movie. Speaking of his ancestors as an African-American man, he says, those of my ancestors who were in the ships of slavery, he says, they knew when they jumped off that ship, they knew that death was better than bondage. And all that does is speak to how painful bondage is. Some of you, whether it's physical or whether it's genuinely comes up type of spiritual bondage, you, you feel that like, Sometimes you just wish you would rather die than, than keep going with this kind of bondage because bondage is painful. But that's why Paul speaks to that very bondage right here and says, in Christ Jesus, He delivers you. He sets you free from the bondage of this present age. The bondage of this present age is you solving things in the way of the world. 
You answering things the way the world answers things. You valuing what the world values. Now, here's something to note. Anytime we seek to solve something or value something without God a part of the equation, it is evil. Evil is genuinely described as removing God from the equation of our life. We've been delivered from this present world that seeks to solve everything on their own. That seeks to value the world above everything else. When we choose to follow the world's ways, it is evil. Jeremiah chapter 2 verses 12 and 13 says this way. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. One, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. I'm the one that's supposed to satisfy their soul. I'm the one that's supposed to care for you and give you wisdom and direction. I'm the one that's supposed to shape your values. I'm the one you're living for. Evil number one, they've forsaken me. And they said, I'm going to solve this on my own, thank you. And number two, they have hewed out for themselves cisterns. That's basically wells that they were going to get their own water from. But it says, they hewed out for themselves cisterns Broken cisterns that can hold no water. The image is this. It's beautiful on the outside, but when you peer down in, it's got cracks all over it and it holds no water. God wants to deliver you from your self-salvation projects. And our attempts to solve things and to value things apart from God being central to everything. Here's two ways ultimately that the world tries to do this. Here's two ways that we also fall into the enslavement of the world. One I might title selfishness. The world does not title it that way. But I might title it selfishness. It might be, it's the getting on top. It's the power is what is best. It is me first mentality. It is I will do whatever I have to do to put myself in the best position so that I can have all that I want to make me happy no matter who I end up running over or running around. It's valued in our world. When people do it, you say, well, you can't blame them because, you know, they need to do what is best for them. Ultimately, it's always without full regard with anybody else around you. And so what happens is the world solves the problem through money is the aim. It's about getting ahead. It's about fame will fix it. And then what happens with this worldview? What happens with this worldview is that you encounter things that those things won't fix. You encounter pain that money can't fix and fame didn't satisfy and the pat on the back didn't solve. What do you do? You try something that will numb you. Try drugs or alcohol or relationships or whatever. So all of a sudden, that's a cistern, hewed out. It's got a crack in it. It's not holding any water that satisfies. you got a leak in your bucket. Well, that's one group of people. There's another group of people, and it's, it's a humanist approach. It's a, I might even call it the kindness approach. 
you know tons of people who do not embrace Jesus but are really kind. And you're wondering, like, if I even talk to them about God, what really do they need? They're really kind. They do good things. This is the humanist approach. It's usually characterized by a theme of tolerance. This theme of everybody is equal, we should accept everyone, they might have a coexist kind of bumper sticker which says multiple religions are one way, exclusivity is a four-letter word, it is a sense of kindness. Ultimately summarized, put your hope in humanity. That's why I call it humanism. Put your hope in humanity. Many times parenting is filled with this. It means you can do whatever you want to do. I understand the sentiment there. And that's not fully wrong. But it has its limits, right? I've used the analogy before. If you're a five-foot adult, you're not playing NFL football. It's just not working. There are certain limits to your stature, to your mental capacity, to your demeanor, that you can't do whatever you want to do. I'm sorry. You can't. Ultimately, it's putting faith in humanity. That doesn't mean you don't encourage. It doesn't mean you say you don't say work through the barriers. It doesn't mean that you don't say, hey, try push through this. That's not what I'm saying. But when your hope is in humanity, all of a sudden, Jesus has been removed from the equation and you're solving things like the world solves things. Now, what's wrong with this kindness-humanity approach? The problem is, is not everybody's kind all the time. And so, also, not everybody agrees all the time. So what happens with the humanist approach is that when somebody doesn't agree with you, then you push them to the periphery. You make fun of them. You create a social media death, and you try to kill them via Facebook or Twitter or whatever. Because they don't think like you. They're not as open-minded as you, and yet you've just slaughtered them. Where'd the kindness go? What about when somebody is not kind back to you? All of a sudden, you've lost your belief in humanity's goodness. What about this? What about when you aren't kind all the time? What about that one moment when your kindness shifts to snapping at your wife, and all of a sudden, you weren't kind just then? Then you have to pretend that that wasn't so bad or you live in shame and guilt and you don't know how to solve it. This is where the church of Galatians was prior to the gospel coming. How do I solve the problems? Will I solve and will I value things in such a way that reflects the world's way of doing it? Or is there something more? Is there a Savior who comes and says, No, you can't solve it. I have to solve it. And you aren't good enough. So I come and I live inside of you and now I shape everything. What I value is what you value. You need my strength and it's okay to declare your weakness because your identity is not in how perfect you can be. It's in how perfect I am. It's a total flip. It's the people who can admit that they got issues and that they're weak and that Jesus alone is strong. It's the people who are okay to say, I need each other rather than I can make it on my own, the American mantra. The church stands in antithesis to these elementary principles of the world. And Paul says, you have been set free from that by Jesus. Why in the world would you try to enslave yourself back to that mess again? Why? 
So, Paul says, he gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age, from this world, to deliver us from it. What's he delivering us to? Here's what you need to hear. When he sets you free, he doesn't set you free to be just your own boss and authority. That would be a train wreck. And I ain't just talking about you, I'm talking about me too. And when he sets you free, he does not set you free from all authority. Here's a crucial principle that it might, may, might maybe mess up your head. Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. Here's how Paul describes his newfound freedom. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, if I were still enslaved to man, I would not be a, and say the next three words. Does anybody know what the word servant means there? Slave. Here's a new note for you. You are always a slave to someone or something. Always. The question is, who is your master? Will you give yourself to those peers who always make fun of you and orient your whole life around their thoughts of you? Will you orient yourself around the career ladder that you hope to attain in order that if you have the status, then you finally arrive? Will you orient yourself to those kind of values and be enslaved by those kind of addictions? Or will you say, I've got a new master. I have a new boss. And I do everything he says to do. I live my life for him. Jesus is my master and I love him. I love him. We are always enslaved to something, Paul says. We are slaves to Christ. And that's the freest place you will ever be. Friends, please. When the title of the whole series of the book of Galatians is called Galatians, Free at Last, many of us, many of us have slowly perverted what genuine freedom is according to the Bible. Freedom is freedom to do what we want to do. Or freedom is freedom to some life of convenience. Freedom is maybe even freedom to experience the benefits that God gives me. He can give me peace. He forgives my sins. He takes away my shame. He can help me feel a little better in the midst of my suffering and pain. And all of a sudden, the way the Bible talks about freedom has been undercut. Because what we've just done is we've made freedom about us. The Bible says you are not only freed from bondage, but you are freed to union with Christ. You are freed to Jesus. The greatest joy and treasure is that sinners get to be in the presence of God and that God dwells within him and takes up residence in your heart. That's freedom. Even if it means you're not wealthy, even if it means you experience pain, freedom is you get God. And that's enough. 
he's enough. So when the Bible says free at last, when the Bible speaks of freedom and we are finally free, there is this sense that we are free because we have been set free to be slaves of Christ. We are free to be underneath His authority. And that's why it says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. It means you can experience the freedom of God and then keep submitting yourself to bondage. Here, that bondage was Jesus plus in order for me to experience His love. Paul says, no, 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 you are loved. The cross is finished. It's done. You blew it yesterday, but you're still loved. You're not perfect, but you're still loved. You're not the smartest and the sharpest tack in the box, but you're still loved. You don't have the position of that other person, and you don't think quite like they do, but you're still loved. Don't submit yourself to Jesus plus and enslave yourself again. Don't try to be someone else. Realize it's by faith alone that you are made a child. That's why it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Where God is, there's freedom. By faith alone, where is He? He is here. He is united to you. It is this mysterious sense of you are connected to Jesus. It is a mystery. It is powerful. It is glorious. You are connected to Jesus. And for over 1700 years of the church, the central message of the good news of Jesus was this. Sinners can be united to Christ. But suddenly, over time, we have worked it to make it about our deliverance, about our comfort, about our ease, and not about Him being with us. And all of a sudden, it's the, it's the device of the devil to just slowly, over time, push Jesus to the periphery and all of His benefits to the center. And you know that you've latched on to his benefits a little too hard when all of a sudden you lose a few of those experiences and all of a sudden you want to get rid of him. You call him into question. You put him in the judgment seat and all of a sudden Jesus is no longer good. But he's still with you. and That's enough. Where Jesus is, there is freedom. Now I've been reading a book. A book by a man named Rankin Wilborn. I said a couple of weeks ago, I, I said a quote from him because I was, uh, fin I was had started the book. I called him Randy. Poor Rankin. I just saw an R, thought it was Randy, and realized later his name is Rankin. So, forgive me. Rankin Wilborn. He wrote a book, Union with Christ. As I've been reading it, he uses several images to help us understand union with Christ. But here's how he begins. He says, union with Christ is a mystery. 
And so we have to be really careful how we talk about it because it's almost like when you tell a joke and then someone has to, and you have to kind of explain it, you kill the joke, right? And so there's this mystery that says, you are united to the living God of the universe and he dwells inside of you and he will never leave you and that is beautifully mysterious. But the Bible does help us understand a little bit what that mystery is and so we've got to venture in and yet we risk the sense of losing mystery with the explanation. Here's a couple of images that he gave. He talked about being a football player. He was a football player in the late 90s, early 2000s. But he grew up watching Chicago Bears in the 80s, William the Refrigerator Perry. How many know who I'm talking about? You got a few? Okay. Everybody over 30 or so. Um, so William the Refrigerator Perry was this beast of a man who looked like a lineman, but he would be put in for running plays on the goal line. And he served as a massive running back slash fullback slash whatever. And they would give him the ball and he would just bowl people over and run right in and score a touchdown. So Rankin said when he played middle school football, they had a play called the refrigerator. Rankin, and this is where you got to know your limits, right? Rankin was crazy skinny and crazy short. He was not going to be the refrigerator. Once again, been a bad design if that were the case. But they had one kid who was a beast of a man in middle school. And so the plan was this. The refrigerator would run through the line and Rankin would hide behind him and just run right behind him and <laughs> score every time. And so what you had was this big old dude who paved the way and he says they couldn't even see me. He was so big. Like they couldn't even find me. And by the time they found me, I was across the goal line. This in a little bit can help us with union with Christ. Someone bigger and stronger had to go before us because we could not do it on our own. And so Christ stood in our place, the one who is powerful. He goes before and we hide in his protection. We hide in his love and he conquers and we get the victory. Similarly, some of you watched World Cup recently. Now, if Lionel Messi, they didn't do so well, that's who I really wanted to do well. If Lionel Messi kicks the game-winning goal, who did they say wins the game? Argentina. Argentina won the game. They would not just say, Lionel Messi won the game, Argentina lost. That's not how that rolled. The guy on the team who kicked the game-winning score his game-winning score was attributed as a victory to the entire team. Even those who were on the bench and never saw the field, and this is where it gets good to be a fan, you would hear many fans say, we won. You didn't do squat. We won. What is that? You are leaning on the victory of another as your victory. It's ours. And you live in it. It leads you to celebration. It leads you to excitement. It sometimes changes how you live because then you watch the next game and you talk about it. There's a sense of you're hiding in the victory already won for you. It's union with Christ. You are united with Him. He loves you and you can't change that status. 
He has won what you could not win. He goes before you and he is always with you. Does that mean that sometimes Rankin didn't get tackled? You better believe he got tackled. Things are hard in life. And I'm sorry if it hurts your view of Jesus if I somehow equated him to William the Refrigerator Perry. I really am. Don't, don't, don't make that too one-to-one there. Mystery. But the question is, what stands in the way of us experiencing intimacy with Jesus? What stands in the way of what Rankin-Wilborn calls the gap? You know what I'm talking about. I've heard all my life that Jesus sets me free. Or, I've got this newfound faith. And I've got new desires and new loves, but I still have old struggles. And yet you talk about over here that you are set free. And that there's an intimacy with God and there's a closeness with God and He is with you and you experience His power. What happens here? This is where I live. You tell me this, my experience is this, not this. What about the gap? What do we do with it? Many of us experience it. What stands in the way of genuine intimacy with God? Well, there are some things the book of Galatians teaches us. Some people will come in and give a false message and you can try to believe that mess and it will hurt your soul. That's chapters 1 and 2. Then at the end of chapter 2, he talks about adding to Jesus. You can add things whether it be you better obey in order for him to love you rather than you obey because he already loves you or ethnicity. At the end of chapter 2, they made, they, uh, Peter made ethnicity greater than Jesus. You got to be careful. You got to be careful we don't make our whiteness or our blackness or our Hispanicness greater than Jesus and end up pulling away from fellowship separating, getting into our own little camps rather than saying, Jesus is enough. It's not Jesus plus. And Jesus came to die. At the end of Galatians chapter 4, he says this, it's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, barbarian or Scythian, male or female, but all are one in Christ Jesus. That means women don't need to become men to be saved. And men don't need to become women. It means black don't need to be white, white don't need to be black, Hispanic don't need to be Asian, Asian don't need to be Hispanic, It means that those who are bosses don't need to become employees. Employees don't need to become bosses to be accepted. You are loved by faith alone. When we elevate those other things, they stand as barriers to intimacy with God because we don't make God the hero. We make those other things the Savior. And if we really had those, then we'd be content. We'd be free. No, no, no. That's the heresy of the book of Galatians. And on top of that, the people of Galatians, they were limiting God's power. They were questioning whether God's power was enough to extend to all the nations of the earth, to the Gentiles. And he says, no, his grace is sufficient to save all people. It's sufficient to save all. So have you? Have you limited God and said, yes, he saved me, but I don't know, that person looks pretty far gone. 
Don't limit. That affects your intimacy with God. It affects your experience with the living God when you say He is not able. And then finally, in the book of Galatians chapter 5 and 6, He says, why are you walking in the flesh? Why are you giving yourself to the things that are of the world? The things that I have delivered you from, you're diving back into. You're given into anger, you're given into slander, you're given into sexual immorality. You are walking in the ways of the flesh rather than walking in the new life that's been given to you by the Spirit. Why are you enslaving yourself again? You want to know why we don't always experience that intimacy? Why there's a gap? It's because. It's because we have chosen to be enslaved by the world rather than by Christ. Rankin Wilborn said this. Here's a quote from his book, Union with Christ. I was much more accustomed to thinking of Christ as a Savior outside of me than as the one who dwells within me and has united his life to mine. Yes, I had heard the popular refrain, Jesus in your heart. But my primary understanding of the gospel was that Jesus had accomplished something for me outside of me. And that's true. But that was once long ago. However, these writers, both the gospel writers, biblical writers, and also writers of early church history, these writers spoke of Christ uniting Himself to me. Not just delivering me from something, but delivering me to something. Both here and now, I didn't see myself as one in whom The Son of God now dwells. I didn't go through my day mindful of the indwelling presence of Jesus Christ. And I certainly didn't see this as the heart of the gospel. All that Christ has done for us, forgiven us, set us free, promising us heaven, is useless and of no value to us unless we are united to Him. Now that's strong language. But is this the, he goes on to say, is this the definition of Christianity for you? Is this what you think of when you think of being saved? To be saved means to be united to a Savior. To be connected to Jesus in an intimate and mysterious way that He never leaves you and you always are with Him. This, I love this quote. The greatest treasure of the gospel greater than any other benefit the gospel brings is the gift of God himself. That's why he says at the end of the book of Galatians, he says this, far be it from me to boast of anything except the cross of Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me. I'm dead to that. I don't value things the way the world values it anymore. I don't solve things the way the world solves it anymore. I am different. That's what he goes on to say. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision. That's not what matters. What matters is I'm a new creation, he says. I'm new. I'm different. I'm indwelt by God. And he has changed me. Oh, friends. Jesus came and he died in your place to free you from the bondage you could not free yourself from. The sin that is yours. 
the world that influences you. He has come to deliver you, but He has come to free you not just from bondage, but to union with Jesus. Over the past eight weeks, I think I've preached three times. And I haven't missed a TCC sermon. Whether it was Facebook or whether it was sitting here, I've listened to them all. Now, if it was Facebook, I had to really press hard on those earpieces. <laughs> Why do I say that? I say it because I understand where you sit. I get it. You're like, how in the world? Like, like this is good, okay. But how in the world does this matter this afternoon? How does it matter this afternoon? How does it affect what I watch? How does it affect my marriage and the fact that my kids aren't obeying or I wish they were in a different spot? How does it affect that I wish that I were in a different spot? How does it affect my job? When my boss gives me demands on a Monday that there's no way on God's green earth they can be accomplished by the end of the week and he or she says, Get it done. Now you're overwhelmed. How does this matter? I get it. I get it. I've sat here under good preaching. Faithfully sharing God's word with me. And I just want you to know. The only way this begins to matter. When you take God at his word, you believe that he is there with you. When that boss gives you those impossible demands. You have that argument with your spouse. And in that moment, will you stop and say, God, I was just too angry. I was just too oblivious. I was just too self-consumed. Or will you defend and get angry? When you're looking at those children and they're not where you want them to be or you look at yourself and you're not where you want to be, will you go to Jesus and will you try to rehearse what he says about you? Dear friends, this is the work of being a follower of Jesus that I can't do for you. But I can tell you what the book of Galatians tells you. There's a false message out there that will try to tell you another way to solve your world, the world's problems and your problems. They will tell you over and over how to deal with life. But I'm here to look at you in the eye and I'm here to say, we're in this together. And Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 summarizes this whole thing. I am crucified with Christ. I died when he died. It is no longer I who live, but it's Jesus who lives in me. And I'm going to believe that. I'm going to believe he's going before me every single moment of every single day. I'm going to take him at his word. It's Christ who lives with me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, you know, the, the life I live in the flesh... <laughs> 
the one that has to make the decisions, the one who feels weak and tired, the one who forgets things, the one who feels ADD all the time. That life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. I just trust Him. And I'm going to trust that He loves me and that He gave Himself for me. And if God is for me, who can be against me? But I promise you this, He will never come to your mind if you don't spend time with Him. It is simple math. If you are not with Him, He will not come to your mind. What goes in is what comes out. So I encourage you, book of Galatians is six chapters. I timed it. It takes three and a half minutes to read one chapter. If you wanted to read the whole book in one setting, it would take you 19 minutes and 50 seconds. I encourage you. If you don't know where to read, why don't you pick up the book of Galatians? And every day, why don't you read one chapter a day? And on that seventh day, why don't you read a psalm? And you'll be like, okay, that's one week. That doesn't solve very much. I encourage you to read it again. And then again. And then again. And then again. And here's what's going to happen. The more you read it, the more you will begin to see things you never saw. You'll have questions you didn't have the first time. Then you bring those questions to your community group or to your spouse or to your kids and you talk about them. You say, I need help here. You try to find an answer to it. And we will walk through this together. Because our God is with us. He is in us. If you are a follower of Jesus, by faith alone. And so, my prayer is that over this semester, we will experience a little bit more of Him and the freedom that He has given to us. Let's pray. Father, thank you. If you are for us, who can be against us? By simple faith alone, looking up at the stars, looking up at the impossible, we say, I trust you. You are relevant to my marriage. You are relevant to my child rearing. You are relevant to my studies. You are relevant to my job. You are relevant to my pain, my sadness, my depression. There is no corner of my life in which it is not characterized by yours. You are with me. You are with us. That is enough. And so, Father, I pray. I just plead that over this time that we have together, over the hard work of week in and week out, just spending time with you as imperfect as we are, we would stop measuring ourselves by our failures and start gazing at our Savior and dwelling with Him. Lord, I pray that the waters of faith would rise in this church and what we would see, we would see by the end of this semester a group of people that look more like Jesus than when we began. A group of people filled with the Spirit. A group of people characterized by love. A group of people that stand in contrast with the world because of their shocking peace and their love for each other and for the city. Father, please. We want to experience free at last. And we want to begin by dwelling with you because you are already with us. The victory is won. The power is ours. You love us unconditionally. Now help us to go. 
Now we're going to take a time of the Lord's Supper. It's a time of reflection. It's a time of confession. It's a time of celebration. If you're a follower of Jesus, this meal is for you. It's a time for you to confess. If you are walking in the flesh, that might be why the gap is there. If you are limiting God and saying he is unable to do X, Y, or Z, part of that is a disjunct. It is a lack of faith. You confess that to him and you ask him to change your heart. Part of some of us have been listening to the wrong voices and not allowing God and his word to be our authority. May we confess that. supper is a moment of confession, but it's also a moment of celebration that we are not left alone. Jesus is with us. His spirit is alive and at work. If you are not a follower of Jesus, some of this seemed really strange to you. I get it. But this meal, this Lord's Supper is not a, is not actually a meal for you to take because in taking it, meant to be followed by it's meant to be preceded by baptism and it's meant to be something where you are saying I am Christ and he is mine if you can't say that then this meal is not for you but this time is for you to call out to Jesus to do what only he can do confess your sins confess your bondage ask him to set you free and trust that he died in your place he rose from the dead three days later that is enough for you to trust him with your life. Whatever it is, this time is for us. Let's take of the Lord's Supper.